0: Raiden is a parapsychology researcher. He has been senior scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and is, among many other things, a book author. His most recent book, Real Magic, just, um, was just published in April, I think. Um, we had a very interesting conversation about magic, the nature of magic, ways of measuring and discovering magic also in relationship um, with uh, wisdom traditions and stuff like that a very interesting conversation I hope um, you find it interesting too um, if you like this episode or this podcast don't hesitate to support it in whatever way you see fit uh, my name is Thomas Mark. This is Lateral Conversations. All the best to you guys. Perfect. So, welcome. Thank you. Mr. Reinen, would you, just for, for starting off, would you tell us something about yourself, your, your approach, your your background, basically, and, and how you came, you have this interest, why you have this interest in, in this kind of topic?
1: Well, that's a lot to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> Okay, so uh, my my formal training is in music, and electrical engineering and psychology. So I was originally headed to uh, toward a career as a concert violinist, and then uh, ended up getting my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, and also then a master's degree and a Ph.D. in psychology. My interest in psychic phenomena and related topics probably started as a result of uh, reading science fiction and fairy tales as a youth and having the same questions that all children have, which is, it kind of feels real, but it can't be real because that doesn't fit with what we know about reality. So I was always curious about that conflict between an internal sense that something about this seems real, or at least is fascinating, combined with That doesn't seem to be the way that science tells us how things work. So what caught my attention when I was uh, about 12 years old was reading a book on parapsychology that happened to be written by a skeptic. But in the book, it described that experiments can be done. And of course, had been done. I just wasn't aware of it. And that then caught my attention because now there was a way to test if these phenomena were really real. So even as a as a, a teenager, I was doing casual experiments with ESP cards and that sort of thing. And then uh, throughout college and graduate school, I started reading the, the literature and was pleased to see that it's very large literature and that more and more sophisticated methods have been applied. So I started to do more sophisticated experiments and was getting interesting results. So... This set up even more curiosity on what, what how... Kind of results? Well, I did experiments on precognition in graduate school. Actually, uh, probably the first computer-based experiment in 1976 uh, with a computer network at the University of Illinois called the PLATO network. I forget what the acronym stood for, but it was about an educational uh, system for education that had thousands of terminals in the University of Illinois system. And it was connected to, at the time, the beginnings of the internet. So I did precognition experiments with thousands of participants, got some interesting results. Some people clearly were doing beyond chance. Uh, so it, it stimulated my imagination, but there, there's no career in that. You can't get a degree in it or find jobs or anything. So I figured it would probably be just an advocation, not a vocation. Right. But in my, my first job at Bell Laboratories and in later jobs, I found I was always able to take some time out of my daily work to pursue these kinds of experiments. So I started doing experiments on this at Bell Labs mm-hmm. and, and eventually got approval from management to be able to publish them. And then I was recruited for the U.S. government's program of psychic spying research, which was. Highly classified at the time. And that's when I, I first had the opportunity to meet remote viewers who were super talented and, and could actually, and were good enough to be pragmatically useful for espionage. Well. And that's what convinced me. This was 1985. But it convinced me that not only is there top level science that can be done, but there are also top level people involved that really do have talent. So it's a real thing. And that's, when you go through a standard scientific training, that's really shocking because you never hear that. You only hear the complete opposite. Sure. So I was determined in some way uh, after the experience I had on the government program to see if I could spend full time doing this kind of research. So from then about till now, uh, almost always, been working full-time doing this kind of research, and there's only um, about 150 people around the world who are scientists and scholars who are seriously interested in this, Mm. and I would say maybe at any given time, perhaps 40, who are actively engaged in experiments. So it's a very small field as far as science goes, Uh, but for those of us who have done the experiments and looked at, at the literature, it confirms my initial impression way back when that these are real phenomena. Uh, we don't know very much about them yet, but we can study them using the tools of science. So, at minimum, it suggests that the standard materialistic scientific worldview is not completely correct. Right. And so, as a scientist, that's really interesting to me because it means we've we left out sure. some assumptions, and the history of science shows again and again that it's the anomalies. The things that don't fit, sure. which when understood, oftentimes lead to breakthroughs in understanding. So that's my interest.
0: That's it's a lot on, to unpack. So, but you prefer the term psi or magic or, um, because your book is, is called Real Magic. So, right. Tf, And just for the listeners, it, it is a scientific approach, as far as I've read, to, to these kinds of phenomena where you uh, go through diver, diverse experiments. To, right. And, and uh, also through the history of those, those phenomena and how culture dealt with it.
1: Right. So the reason I wrote a book that's about magic is because the, from the data perspective, from the empirical perspective, psychic phenomena, which is my main interest, we can say that it exists. But the very next question that most scientists ask, and even the general public is, well, then how do you explain it? And so, Like them, I've tried for years to figure out ways of using what we currently know about science to make models that would explain these things. And about the closest that we can come is something like quantum entanglement. Mm. Because the one thing that's strange about psychic phenomena is that they are experiences that transcend space and time. That's the only reason why they're considered weird, that you have connections with people at a distance, you can see the future, all of that stuff. It's space-time connection. Plus the possibility that something about uh, observation of reality seems to change it from quantum mechanics. So my, one of my previous books was called entangled minds where I was looking at the physics of this and saying, well, it's not incompatible. It's not correct to say the physics says nothing about this because it actually does. So that was that book. Hmm. But I was always puzzled by it because quantum mechanics is not the end of physics. It's just a stage along the way where we're learning certain things. And there's many things that are unknown about it. That's why there's at least a dozen different interpretations. We don't know what it means. So so quantum mechanics is not an explanation for psychic phenomena. Sometimes I'm accused of that by skeptics. And that's not what I'm proposing. Other skeptics have said that I'm claiming that quantum mechanics explains consciousness. And that's not true either. I've never said such things. But I'm, all I'm saying is that from the, our models of the physical world are not incompatible with, right. with these phenomena. And, and whereas in the 17th century, they would definitely have been incompatible. Yeah, Even you have,
0: though, you, you have a very neat figure in, in your book, at the end of the book, where you highlight ordinary consciousness with the rational scientific mindset, the modernistic mindset, and, and highlighted that the moment we discovered the unconscious, Uh, that was also the time when we discovered quantum theory and that below those levels you call it gnosis and the sub-quantum level are some somehow entangled do i get that right
1: it's not so much that they're entangled but they're not different at all okay there's no difference at Hmm. some deep level right The, the other part of that figure shows that our ability to describe reality is dependent on our mathematics at least from a science perspective. So the more abstract mathematics has become, the more our models seem to reach deeper and deeper into the nature of reality. And mathematics is not finished yet either. So we don't know how far down it goes, but it goes probably pretty far. If awareness can go all the way down, That far, then it provides a clue, I think, as to what might be going on here. Because when you go deep enough, consciousness and physical world and mathematics—they all begin to—they seem to begin to converge. Mm -hmm. So,
0: so in the most broadest sense, what is magic, upside? Can you can you have a
1: right? So I'm hmm? I'm heading there. All right. (laughs) So so to try to answer this question then of how how do you explain these phenomena? you, you can look through the lens of science. You can do the best that you can, but it's never quite good enough. So I decided to look for clues elsewhere for other ways of looking at models of reality. And one of the places I began to look at was the Eastern esoteric traditions. And I focused on yoga because within the yogic tradition, psychic phenomena are well accepted. So in my latest book, Real Magic, I'm looking at the Western esoteric traditions and in order to do that, this is why I provide a pretty big chapter on tracing the history of, of that. And in addition, you, I wanted to do a synthesis of what is the primary belief within that worldview. And it's very simple. It's that consciousness is fundamental. It's a, From a philosophical perspective, it's idealism. That's That's the underlying belief within all of the esoteric traditions, both East and West. So... From that perspective, uh, the Western esoteric perspective is saturated with stories about magic, and it's linked to the philosophical notion of idealism, because if consciousness is indeed fundamental, meaning more fundamental than than the physical world, it, it imagines that the physical world emerges somehow out of consciousness. If that is correct, then suddenly all of the basic notions of magic make a lot of sense, and the, and the everything from hermeticism and Neoplatonism and all of those esoteric traditions—they all talk about this in terms of this cosmology is the reason why your mind can make things happen, mm. and 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 why uh, you can see through space and time, because to to make it uh, simplistic, if consciousness with a big C is the universe, it's everything there is. A part of that is causing the universe to arise in the physical sense. When the physical world arises, it's not an illusion. It's a real thing with its own patterns and laws and so on. So physics is correct, and everything above physics is correct too. So science doesn't go away, but the materialistic model then is just a subset of a larger perspective. And the larger perspective says the whole thing is embedded in consciousness in some way or or awareness. But that awareness is outside. Of physics, and and we enjoy the same consciousness. What, the thing I call me, is that same stuff. So there's a portion of me that can perceive through space and time, and a portion of me that can give rise to the physical world, to a very small degree, because we're a very tiny bit of of the whole shebang. Sure. Mm-hmm. So this is a theme you see again and again in all of the esoteric traditions that are talking on one hand about a cosmology, a a description of reality, and about magical phenomena. And most importantly, the link back to Psy is that magic consists of three basic practices. Divination, which we study as clairvoyance and precognition. Force of will, which we study as psychokinesis. And theurgy which we study in terms of mediumship and channeling and out-of-body experience and so on. So that's the link. It's saying that what we've been doing in science to try to study common experiences, psychic experiences, that is what the ancients, not only ancients, but up to the present day, what people talk about in terms of magic.
0: Right. Have you heard of, of, of those old magical books what what are they called um, the goetia or um, psarmon yeah, and stuff stuff like that where you have these formulas Spell. by spells and and uh-huh. by which you supposedly can do the craziest things so all, all of those things would be part of this threefold understanding of of magic like force of will or, or
1: most of the grimoires yeah. The, the French term. The grimoires are uh, mostly about force of will. Right. Not always. Some of them are about conjuring spirits and so on. So it's important at any time you look back in history, you're, you're going to find an enormous amount of distortion, a lot of superstition, a lot of allegory because the language wasn't really set. So my interpretation of the ceremonial part and the spell casting part of most of the magic probably the, the vast majority of it were excluding the superstitions and the mistakes and so on. It's basically ritual. And the rich, ritual is important because it's a way of focusing the mind in a non-ordinary state. So all of the magical traditions basically say again and again that it's gnosis, the G-N, a gnosis state, mm-hmm. this deep mystical uh, state, which is where the magic comes from. And that's, that's very far away from everyday waking state. So if you're chanting symbols in a language that you don't understand and you put a lot of attention on it, you're pulling yourself away from the ordinary state and getting closer to this deeper state that you need to be in. So that's my interpretation of the ceremonial part of, of magical practice. Right.
0: Uh, all of those wisdom traditions have a magical side so so to say that to to reach some form of unification or illumination or realization whatever you call it you have to pass through a stage where you get accustomed to those phenomena and have to leave them behind you know right. it's, it's, and, and you, you find that pattern basically everywhere you find right. it in yoga and you, know, yep. you said that yep. but so but your book is not concerned with those spiritual religious aspects uh, but it's more about the, the, the Psi aspect.
1: Yeah, well, because the, the, the thing that's of interest in magic for many people is, is that real? Well, as I try to point out in the book again and again, it's not Harry Potter. Right. It's not stage magic. It's, those things are designed to be entertaining and appealing, so there are major embellishments. So I'm interested in the in-principle question. Is it possible in principle that this is real and in principle and in principle and even not so much about what does the evidence say? Because the evidence is very clear from a scientific perspective that those things exist. The more interesting question from my perspective now is, well, how can it exist? Hmm. And that's why I spend a fair amount of time in the book then helping relieve the anxiety of other scientists that they're going to have to throw away their textbooks. That's not necessary. All we need to do is expand our current view of reality, do you and, think... and which is what science has always done. I mean, this is nothing new. It's just saying, well, let's do it again. And suddenly this whole realm that we consider to be anomalous will no longer be anomalous.
0: Do you think it's, it's interesting because this knowledge is suppressed in our culture in a way? It's not part of the mainstream narrative of how everything works. And because of that, we all have this kind, not we all, but a lot of people have this urge to understand this and this fascination with this topic, or is that something different? Why, why do we have this interest in this kind of phenomena? Do you have an idea for that?
1: Well, it, in the academic world, academics are taught repeatedly that these are things you, you don't talk about uh, because they're not real. That's what the textbooks say, and people are reminded of that constantly. And that's why the reaction oftentimes among academics is the evidence you're presenting is impossible. So you've made a mistake. That's the only – you've made a mistake or you're presenting fraud. That's the only possible explanation to it, which is anti-scientific. It's one of the reasons why I'm concerned about it. That when you have the the scientific aspirations, where you you take data first and then you you match it against your theories, if the theory is saying that there's something wrong, well, you make sure that the data is right. Right. And if when you're sure that it is right, you have to change the theories because otherwise it becomes religion. And yet, most of the most severe skeptics and critics about this are taking a very obviously, religious stance. This is where scientism becomes a religion. They probably don't think that, but on the other hand, they don't know the nature of the evidence or maybe they don't want to change. Who knows? But I'm concerned as a scientist who sees the value of open inquiry in the most rigorous way that we can possibly do to support that there's things that we don't understand yet simply a matter of being humble in the face of ignorance of which we are mostly ignorant about everything. Sure, A lot of scientists fall in love with their theories and then they can't think of anything else. So, so that's one of the, the motivations here as well. We, we all so, do,
0: I guess, um, create our worldviews and safe spaces to, to shield us from chaos and from that which we don't know. Right. So, so, but, yeah. But, so
1: it, so it's very strong in the academic world that that resistance, and the general public is interested, as we can see from the reaction to movies and and fiction and so on. It's a multi billion dollar business a year to have entertainment based on these ideas. So part of it is people have the sense that they want the power. You know, they wish they had comic book type uh, abilities to solve their own problems. Uh, I think it's a little bit more than that in in the same sense that sometimes mythological stories have a certain appeal to them because people have an intuitive sense that it's not what you see in the movie, but something like that feels real. And they feel it because the majority of people have had experiences, which may be as simple as a gut feeling or synchronicity or something, which are like little reminders that, no, we don't actually understand the way reality works yet and sometimes really strange connections occur we did a survey recently to ask the general public and scientists and engineers uh, which of 25 different kinds of psychic experiences that they've had and it's anonymous so they could you know there were no restrictions there so among the general public 94% said that they had at least one of the 25 different kinds of experiences wow. personally then among the scientists and engineers, we expect it to be much lower because we're we're taught that this doesn't exist. their uh, percentage was ninety three percent Wow, and this highlights the this um taboo within the academic world. People are having these experiences, including scientists and engineers, but they will deny it in public. they don't deny it when it's safe to to say what they really think hmm. I just think that's that's something that should be studied right off the bat because among other things said, this is not not the only thing where there's a taboo about talking about it. There's lots of taboos. And so sociology and politics determine how we can talk about reality. And it has always been that way, but that it is still exists and to a very strong degree in, in today's world, I find it kind of surprising and sort of sad. True
0: true would you can you describe one of one for example one experiment which has been done and like to to get an understanding how how you approach this or, or how to measure these kinds of things
1: okay so just let's a, take
0: let's, let's a, just a little example so so yeah
1: So let's take the, we'll link it back to magic. So magic is that notion of divination among which you try to see the future. So we want to do a scientific test to see whether it's possible in principle to do that. So one of the experiments uh, that I've done and many others have done now as well is called presentiment. And it's uh, an experiment where you uh, wire somebody up to look at their physiology their heart rate, their skin conductance, size of their pupil and their eye and so on. And you sit them down in front of a computer and they press a button and five seconds later, a picture pops up on the screen. And it could be very calm or very emotional. And then the picture goes away and then they repeat that. So in one session, you might see 40 pictures, each time selected randomly from a large pool of pictures of calm and emotional pictures. So the the purpose of this is to see whether physiologically, which was reflection of your unconscious mental activity mostly, does your body begin to react differently before an emotional picture than it does before a calm picture? If it it does, then it would suggest that there's some aspect of you, maybe not consciously, but some aspect of you that is feeling what is about to happen. And so we've done that experiment. It works. We've had colleagues do the experiment, and it works for them, too. More importantly, because the description of this experiment that I just said is a very popular thing to do in in mainstream psychophysiology, that you can use the data from an experiment that wasn't designed to look beforehand, as most experiments are looking at what happens when you see a picture. You know, we look at how how your physiology changes, but you can use the same data to look backwards in time. And see if people were in fact responding differently before an emotional or calm picture. And so my colleagues have managed to find something like seven or eight databases of already published mainstream studies, all of which were looking only at after the, the stimulus, but they look before the stimulus, and sure enough, the effect shows up there too. Wow. So this this means that the this pre sentiment effect is it's like everywhere, all the time. You have to look for it to find it but it appears even in data where, in experiments where people weren't even beginning to look at it right. or they had no notion to look at it. So in any time you do an experiment like this, you of course have to be careful that uh, there are no clues given about what the upcoming picture is, uh, that the random sequence really has to be random and many, many other things like that. And all of that has been covered. So, right. we have, so there's a, a, a one example of uh, a case where we can show that in principle, we're responding to future events.
0: Right. And how within this experiment, how do you, do you differentiate between reaction to a previous picture and premonition of a picture which is coming up in this setup?
1: Right. So when you're using a, a physiological measure like skin conductance, it takes roughly two and a half to three seconds after you've seen a picture to have a response depending on how emotional it is, it could take 30 seconds or so before you come back down to the baseline. So in, that, in experiments with slow physiology, you have to wait a long time between pictures. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. If you're using something like, uh, like brain waves or, or brain activity, uh, you respond within about a half a second or less, but the response is over within about one and a half seconds. So you can do much faster repeated trials in that case. So that, that's how you get rid of the effect of the previous trial. And so again, it depends on the, the timing of the physiology that you're looking at. I've done a number of studies using pupil dilation, where you're just looking at the screen, but we have a camera looking back at your eye, and we can measure the size of the pupil. So for five seconds, you're looking at a blank screen. So there's no light or anything to push your pupil around, but emotion pushes the pupil around too. So we're able to infer your emotional state while you're looking at a blank screen. And then you see a picture. Wow. And hmm. so we again see this correlation between the future picture is emotional, your pupil begins to dilate. And if it's calm, it stays the same.
0: Hmm. It all it all looks a little bit like um the story Flatland. I don't I don't know if you know it from James sure. Abbott Abbott. So yeah, yeah. Like yeah. We, we with our understanding, two dimensional understanding, trying to understand um yeah, four-dimensional. More, more, yeah, more more complex processes. It's very interesting. So, but your book is not really about how to achieve those things. It's just, just... Well, I
1: do, I do have one chapter on uh, how to do magic. So I chose two very simple methods. I put that in there because my editor said I had to. All right. because after <laughs> all it, it, it's a popular book and it, it's written for a large audience so I know that they're interested in that and so I chose uh, two forms of writing magic or actually one is writing magic where you literally write down what you want hmm. and you focus on it and the other is sigil magic which is like writing except making it into a symbol so right. you see evidence of both of those kinds of magic, going back all the way to uh, greco Roman times is a very very popular method, and it's still mentioned today in books on affirmations because affirmations are part of that same tradition sure so so yeah, so I put that in there as examples of what people do when they want to perform magic
0: right so you know when what, what I find very interesting is that when, when, when you look at those wisdom traditions and and those branches of esotericism and yoga and whatnot it's always that those faculties arise after long periods of training and after after your concentration has reached very high levels of um, focusing on specific things and and i mean the whole yoga path is about self-controlling self-discipline and and so on how, how do you do you approach those those higher cities for example how like like in like in, in the yoga system where even my silly said that there are weird things possible if you have the right concentration and the right psychological development so to speak
1: mm-hmm. well it, it's it's true that uh through, as, as Patanjali says, even in the Yoga Sutras, that you achieve these things through accidents of birth, meaning talent, you can simply have talent for it, uh, through psychedelics, uh, through practice, through meditation, and so on. Because people are different, you're gonna end up probably with something that looks like a normal curve, like sports ability or musical ability. Right. Some people at the far right end of that curve who have talent and practice and do all the rest, they will become exceptionally adept at these things. But it's also very rare. So I can play tennis, but I'm not going to win any tournaments. I'm sure. not going to, you know, it shouldn't be, a, I can't be a professional athlete of any type because that's not what I'm, I'm built for. So there are people, and it's one of the reasons I have a chapter in the book on Merlin-level magicians very rare cases that are well-documented of people who apparently had really major abilities. And so when this, then looking back at it from a psychic perspective in the laboratory, we very rarely get the opportunity to work with people with that level of talent. Still, we can take college sophomores who are only doing the experiment because they're getting credit for it. So they may not have any talent or any ability at all. They still show effects. So, but this is exactly what you would expect if you're dealing with a real phenomenon. It's going to follow a normal curve, pick people at random, you're going to get something in the middle of that that distribution, it is not chance. The whole curve is shifted to the right a little bit towards Mm. the direction of an actual effect. So that means that most experiments where we're simply opportunistically getting people to do the experiment, which is how most experiments work in psychology, you're going to get an effect. Some people will do better than others, but you have to get a lot of data and a lot of repetition in order to see these effects. That means you're absolutely going to have to use statistics to evaluate it. If you had time and money, mainly money, what you can do is survey lots and lots of people and start picking out people who appear to have talent and then retest them and do this again and again until you end up out of a group of a million people, maybe 10 who will be exceptionally good. And then you may, you may be able to get results where you don't even need statistics anymore to demonstrate what's going on. Mm. My interest at this point is no more no, not any longer about having to prove that the effects are real, but more about studying the nature of it. Like, how does, how does it work? And what, what can you do at high, high levels of talent? And maybe what can it be pragmatically used for? I mean, that was the whole U.S. government's program idea that, yeah, it was pragmatically useful. Well, maybe there are many other things that can be useful, like healers. I know some healers who are exceptionally good. They don't know how they do it. We don't know how they do it either. We don't even Mm -hmm. know what, what it is when they do a healing, but it works somehow. So... There's plenty of room for studying the the underlying mechanisms for what's going on here. And, and pro- in the process, probably learning a lot more about the nature of reality itself. It's actually an extreme luxury that we're able to worry about such things. Right? I mean, for people in parts of the world that don't have enough to eat, they can't worry about the nature of reality because they don't have time and energy to do so. For no, people but people do the...
0: magic uh, nonetheless. They, they well, have to, well, have to... Yes.
1: Yes, they, they do magic because uh, they're desperate. And so they, they don't have any other ways of, uh, of doing things. Uh, and, and if you go back far enough in history, there is always at least one shaman in a tribe who was selected and trained to be a specialist in that area, which would be very valuable, I think, in today's society as well. Sure. Some of them we, we still call healers or psychics or whatever. But I, I think just like, in, uh, just like we honor athletes, who are able to do remarkable things, there are individuals that I think we should be identifying young and trained and honored for exactly the same reason, to help us make better decisions about the future, to help us with healing with all pragmatic reasons, but then there's also a scientific side to figure out, well, what, what does that tell us about our cosmological picture? And, right. and of course, that's important because, Our sense of what reality is determines how civilization goes. So if we're in a scientific worldview where there's no inherent meaning or purpose to anything, because that's what it says, then maybe we could just use up the planet and we all die and it doesn't make any difference, right? There's no meaning or purpose. If you live in a different kind of worldview, we're sort of like an indigenous worldview where all nature is sacred, you would never do what big companies do to nature. Sure. Because it, and that that's becomes a life-affirming way of living, which presumably would be a lot better for everyone. So this is a simple example where our understanding of the nature of reality makes a very dramatic difference in terms of individual personal lives, to say nothing of billions of people around the world.
0: Yeah, well, but, but, but I'm wondering if the difference is that big because like the ancient uh, uh um ancient people draw pictograms in the sand for hunting reasons so yep. so so that the hunt is successful it's i don't think they're necessarily lived in more uh, in, in a greater harmony with the world than we do because they they destroyed nature the same as we do but on a not that not not a scale that big you know it's right. but but the You know,
1: I'm not, I I know that there are certainly cases where through ignorance about ecology, Mm -hmm. that that people have destroyed their environment. But as you said, it was on such a small scale that it it essentially didn't matter very much. Right. I mean, if if a tribe had to move somewhere because they got too many animals or cut down too many trees, they go somewhere else. Well, we can't afford to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So we we have to be better stewards of the planet because we don't have ways of getting off the planet yet. Um, so that, that again, is, is related to our conception of who and what we think we are. Yes. You know, and if we can't change that, we're, we're in serious trouble.
0: I think we still have shamans, in, like serious shamans in our culture. Like I, I thought about it recently. For, for me, Timothy Leary was a shaman, not because he was an advocate of of LSD and and stuff like that, but because he shaped reality and our um, culture in a very f- foundational way and looked way into the future of what could be with the stages of neural circuits and and whatnot. And John Brown, another example, a a guy who changed America for for ages. hmm?
1: In in the case of uh, a shaman, I mean, there are many different things that a shaman would do. What I'm particularly in. Talking about is their magical ability, right so uh, somebody who becomes a social change agent and changes the social uh, world does it may have no interest or abilities of psychic ability at all. they know how to manipulate society for good or bad i 'm talking about the the shaman as people who are selected typically as youths because they were able to see aspects of reality that others were not, see the future, and, and make things happen. So it's conceivable. Well, where's, the
0: difference? where's the difference to Timothy Leary and what you just said? Well, because... so
1: in one case, so Timothy Leary may have had a vision of, of what he was trying to achieve, and it was charismatic, so he was able to achieve it, both of which are things that shaman were good at. What I'm talking about is that because some psychic phenomena are real, then we don't know if the, the visions that, that uh, Timothy Leary had were psychic or simply a logical progression of his wish. There's a big difference, right? Somebody who, who is like an abolitionist is saying, well, there's something just inherently wrong with slavery. I'm going to fix that. They have nothing to do with psychic phenomena, nothing to do with magic. It has completely to do with how do you change social concepts, as compared to a shaman in an ancient uh, village where everybody's hungry, they need to know the next day, where are the animals going to be? This is not about social uh, change anymore. It's about seeing into the future at a distance to know where to go to find the animals. That's the level that I'm talking about as a shaman.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah. I, I wonder if, if there's actually a difference you know, it's, it's not about etiquettes. And it's not, I don't think that, that Leary or John Brown or whoever, that they were identifying at, as shamans, but from, just from, from a pragmatic viewpoint, what they were doing. Mm. You know, they had visions and, and they had knowledge of different worlds, at least Timothy Leary. And he, he went in, into the belly of the beast, into prison, and he healed in a way the culture and and saved the culture in in that particular time yeah so i can see the parallel i'm just wondering if if um people like that ascend to that kind of influence because they have access to some Mm. subconscious abilities I, i it's it's complicated to frame that but you know yeah
1: no no i i see your point that uh Maybe what we think of as charisma, you know, the thing that causes other people to be attracted to your ideas. Charisma, the, the word charism comes from Catholicism and it was considered a divine gift.
0: I know, exactly.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it could be, could be similar. It could be that when a, a movie director looks through the lens at an actor and says, that person has it. They have the charisma. They can project onto the screen. Yes maybe it's something similar
0: right are you familiar with the work of ken wilber by any chance
1: yeah i've read it
0: so with with the differentiation between the those four levels and realms like the material level and this um um, subtle level the causal and the non-dual and you know so so we all have access to the dream states you know when we're dreaming or we're daydreaming and the the causal and and A lot of magic is probably happening if you leave that that material, the the, the gross realm, and enter the more subtle and causal realm to be able to change the symbols and to... To
1: To advance your interest, whatever it happens to be. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the appeal of magic in a popular sense is power. You want power over your, and control over your life. That's the primary appeal. It can also be used for many other things. I mean, it can be used as a profession, that you're a healer, that it requires a certain power as well, or to be highly successful, or to invent something, and so on. Many, many different reasons why people are attracted to it. So
0: very very early in your book you write about the entanglement between things and symbols you know and that we that we can understand a thing just through the constructions we have about them you know by the symbols which are attached and if we change them we we change our perception in a way right and right. Which, which is basically a postmodern thought if you will so that sure. things are not only things but it's only also piaget we have to we have to learn what a thing is by what we can do with it you know right. and 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 by attaching symbols and and stuff like that so and if we change that we change the nature of the
1: thing or at least we change the nature of the relationship with the thing
0: exactly so, and
1: mm-hmm. it, which is not exactly like changing the thing itself but we actually don't know that things in themselves have properties Right. So like even from a physics perspective, that a, a single atom sitting all by itself out in space with nothing else, is not exactly an atom anymore, right. especially an elementary particle doesn't have any meaning at all unless it has relationship to other things. So I think I may have written that in the context of spell casting. where uh, talking about the, the dual meaning of spell. So spell as a magical act. But spell also, as making a symbolic representation of the thing that you're you're now attending to,, mm. and by the same token that uh, you uh, drawing has a double meaning you you can draw something to make a symbolic representation of it, and that then, in a magical sense, is drawing it, pulling it toward you oh, as a gosh. result of the attention mm. so spell draw a lot of verbs like that have these dual meanings, when you start mm. thinking of it in terms of we can only communicate through, or not only, but primarily we communicate through language, which immediately constrains what we can say. And it constrains our notion of reality as well, which is why uh, mystics uniformly have said, well, you had this amazing experience. You're clearly changed by it. Tell us what it is. They say, I can't. It's ineffable. Mm-hmm. So there's no language to describe that level of depth for want of a a better term. But it's something, I mean, metaphorically, it's something like diving deep into the nature of reality. You can't go very far before it becomes so abstract that the language doesn't work anymore.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: And we see that already in physics. So we're using very abstract concepts in physics for quantum field theory. And we don't have language. We have the, the equations for it which is why some mathematicians believe that the mathematics is a better description of reality than language can ever be Hmm. because because it's much more abstract. There's a dozen different interpretations of quantum mechanics because we're trying to put language, like everyday conceptual language based on the mathematics. So the math works and we, we can verify that it works, but we actually still don't have any idea about what, what that says about our understanding of reality, hmm. which is really strange, actually. Uh, it shows the, the limits of our ability to talk about anything. So I have, some of my friends are mathematicians, and they get into very strange mental states and they start thinking about abstract mathematics. And Some of them believe that they get in touch with, a, a, they are closer to the nature of reality than our everyday state like a meditator advanced meditator would be but then I say well what, well, what is that what, what are you getting they can't talk about it for the same reason that a mystic can't talk about it they, oh, you can't you can't uh, uh, connect those experiences even at an abstract mathematical level to anything that makes any meaning at all at this level other Then what you see repeated again and again in the esoteric literature, Mm. because the esoteric literature, in a sense, is an interpretation of what the mystics kept trying to say and called it shaped by culture and shaped by politics and so on. But the essence of it is always there. And it looks to me like a lot of it is about idealism, but just not solipsism, but Mm. idealism.
0: It's it's so weird. I, I think the, the the most profound experience I had in the last two years was taking DMT. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's yeah. um, the way this kind of reality was deconstructed to enter a completely different realm of reality mm-hmm. with com- completely different rules. And, as, and and then then I had a podcast with the scientist who did at the Columbia un- University this this trial with, I don't know, 500, 600 people and they all had the same experience without talking to each other, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and he, um, he theorized that because he compared the, the writings of those people with those of the Bible. Well, that, that
1: was Rick Strassman did yeah, most yeah, of that. Yeah,
0: I, I had a podcast with him, exactly. So, uh-huh. and, and two years ago. Very fascinating stuff because we don't know, we, we have a scientific method of talking with angels now, with extraterrestrials or whatever you want to call them, but mm-hmm. they're there as soon as you leave this kind of yeah. space-time continuum. So, right.
1: yeah, yeah, no way, the, the, the psychedelics in particular, especially is used in the mystery schools, as they talk about in the book, yeah. that the mystery schools were, were essential. They're like, uh, they were around for a thousand years before the the church said, don't do that anymore. Uh, They were very instrumental among the Greek philosophers in particular for uh, part of the the theater associated with the mystery school was to give you a sense of what is the afterlife like. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not exactly afterlife. I mean, partly that perhaps, but more it's like, what is the other life like? like what what is the nature of reality and as soon as you can blow away our, our all of our usual psychological filters and our language and stuff exactly. the world is really different it's so true. so i think uh, so timothy leary to get back to him in a little bit is to say that that at some point in our future we really will need psychonauts who who can get into these states learn about it not not get freaked out by the experience but right. learn to do science within those states yes and we're still not there by any long shot, but it, the fact now that psychedelic research is becoming more uh, acceptable, I think is a very positive sign.
0: Sure. It was completely bonkers. How, how reality, when, when I came down after those eight minutes, how reality constructed itself again, like, mm-hmm. and, and it was, it was no hallucination and nobody reports this as, as a hallucination. It's something, very unsettling uh, as soon as we leave this realm or this kind of filters, as you say, this neurological. Right. And
1: And so imagine that there are people out there who naturally have higher levels of endogenous DMT in their system. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, we call them psychics or maybe we call them schizophrenic, depending on, on how well they can integrate both experiences at the same time. And if they have DMT in their system, they they going to have analogs of virtually every other psychedelic drug that we know about, probably many that we don't know about yet. And that's why I'm not all that surprised when I hear people talking about contacting aliens from UFOs and seeing the little people in the forest and all that stuff. They're not making it up. They're describing a reality that the, most of the rest of us, most of the time, simply cannot see.
0: Right have you ever related those two domains like, like Psy research and psychedelic research? Have you ever, is there a connection? Have you ever thought about that?
1: Well, anecdotally is a very clear connection because uh, some drugs like uh, psilocybin in particular, people talk about telepathic rapport all the time under those states. Hmm. And so we're working now to try to develop a protocol where we test people under the influence of psychedelics in experiments but the only way we can do that is to use people who are highly skilled at working in those states because otherwise they are just their mind cannot do an experiment they can't even think about an experiment so the first drug that we were looking into now is ketamine right Ke- mm-hmm. and ketamine is legal in the US and at the right dosage in the right context it can produce pretty strong psychedelic experiences so we We uh, are looking for, we know that there are psychiatrists in San San Francisco who use ketamine as part of their therapeutic practice. And so in that context, the medical doctor there with the psychiatrist and so on, we think we can do experiments.
0: Thomas Schelling, Schelling points, you certainly have heard of that. How do you differentiate between like a PSI experience and those shelling points. Shelling points, it is the thing where you expect um, what the other person expects, what you expect. And so you know that you drive in a car with your loved one and you have a thought and the other person is saying, well, I thought exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And so those are those shelling points where expectations converge in a way. And you have, right. that, you have that even with, with strangers when you ask them, well, um, let's meet in New York in december so and strangely they find each other um med- i don't know where but they subconsciously looking for the most obvious place at the most obvious time and think well the, the other person would think think like that and so they right. make, and and this is like the shelling points it's just about
1: yeah it's it's, com- it's common knowledge Right. So, when you do a proper telepathy experiment, you can't rely on common knowledge for the reasons that you're saying. Right. Mm-hmm. So, instead, you use randomly selected targets. So, the, the 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 person who's playing the role of a sender in a, a telepathy experiment is given a randomly selected target. So, it's not going to be common knowledge because they don't know what it is in advance. Certainly, the receiving party doesn't know what is going to be in advance either. So in the case of a psychedelic psi experiment, uh, the person who has taken the psychedelic uh, would probably be asked to imagine what their friend is looking at. And what the friend is looking at at a distance is in fact a randomly selected target that they, they've been uh, shown. So that, that's how you do the experiment to get rid of the, the mundane explanations.
0: So, so the self-report isn't that valuable in that, in that regard? So that well, if, if somebody said, "Well, I had that, that, and that experience," well, it's
1: valuable in the sense that it gives us a uh, motivation to test to see what it is, mm. right? If you don't, nobody ever reported it; there'd be no reason to look. But because people do report it, you'd say, "Okay, let's see if that is what it appears to be." Mm. And that—that's when you bring in the the controlled environment.
0: Okay. So, what's what's next in in your search for for understanding those those phenomena?
1: Well, most of my research in the past 10 years has been on the mind-matter interaction relationship. Uh, And most of that within the context of optical physics because it's addressing the quantum measurement problem. It's a way of addressing the problem empirically rather than simply shouting at each other, which is typically what happens in physics. So I'm looking at various kinds of quantum systems that uh, people are asked to direct their attention toward or away. In fact, behind me there in that box is an optical system which creates entangled photons. So we're we're actually doing an experiment uh, with mind-matter interaction where the entangled photons are the target of attention. We want to see if by, uh, by attending to the photons, can we change the correlation strength between the so entanglement.
0: What, in layman's terms, what are you doing?
1: We're, we're looking at whether... Okay, so the the strange thing about entanglement is that you have particles that are separated, but they seem to be connected through space and time. Right. The strange thing about psychic phenomena is that people have experiences that seem to be separated by space and time. We're looking to see whether those two similar strangenesses are related to each other or not.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, the, so that's my current experiment.
0: Hmm. And so there are people coming in and, and or how does it work?
1: We had this actually running on the, on the internet for a while. That we, The machinery allows us to make a website where people go to the website and, and can interact with the system virtually over the web. So we've got a lot of people to do it that way. Uh, the next round of experiments, which I'm designing now, will probably be individuals in the lab that will interact with it. Right. And the, the way to interact with it is that you get uh, feedback about the entanglement strength. And uh, the strength of entanglement is about uh, that you have two things that are connected, but the strength of the connection can vary. And we get a measure of that over time. But right. once, per, once per second, we get a new measure of it. So you would see something simple on a screen like a, like a moving line, which is the strength and people participating in the experiment they don't even know they don't need to know that all they're told is here's a moving line make it go up mentally if they can make if they can be successful it's actually linked back to the behavior of what's going on inside the box
0: oh okay interesting
1: yeah that's oh. how most mind matter interaction experiments work that you you get a signal in some way that is showing you the behavior of the physical system and it's much easier than to tell somebody to try to interact with that signal rather than you're pushing photons around or you're doing something else, which is rather abstract to, dis- to describe. Mm. And people can do it. Wow. So, so it's related back to magic in the sense that it is force of will. Your will is pushing the world around. At this case, at the level of elementary particles, but nevertheless, it's doing it.
0: Wow. So one last question, how do you deal with that? I would imagine that you are facing a lot of controversy from more modernistic, secular people who would just say, well, the guy may be nuts. So how do you deal with that?
1: Uh, I deal with it by by saying it's their problem, (laughs) right? You you look at the history of science, anybody who's pushing the, the, the limits of what is known immediately gets resistance from all over the place. But that's not my problem. I'm doing what I think is interesting to do, and the way that somebody else reacts to it, whether it's emotionally or rationally or whatever reaction there is, it only makes a difference if they prevent me from doing what I want to do. Hmm. If, if that happens, then I have, to do, I have to react in some way. But for the vast majority of cases, like you see sometimes on skeptics forums online, they're a complete waste of time because they don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're, they're reacting in some way of what they think is going on, but they don't actually know. So I don't pay too much attention to what other people think. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. right. Okay. Good luck for your future endeavors. Your book is called Real Magic. Yep. Thank you for taking the time for, for having this conversation. It's my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Lateral Conversations uh, and you want to support my work in this podcast you can do so by using the Patreon link or the donate button from PayPal or you just can buy me a coffee. I will put the link below the episode. I want to thank everybody who already supports me. Very much appreciated. I hope... You tune in next time. All the best to you guys. Have a good one.